The Church and the Civil Power The appetite for blood being whetted by the death of the Master, the blood of his followers is demanded to satiate its greed. Stephen soon falls a victim, and the First Church, both men and women, are scattered abroad everywhere by the bloody hand of the civil power. Saul, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, made havoc of the church, and is commissioned to hail any he found of this way men and women to prison. King Herod stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church and killed James, the Lord's brother, and because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also and cast him into prison, intending after the Passover to bring him forth to the people. God opened the prison doors and delivered him. Paul and Barnabas were assaulted at Iconium, stoned at Lystra, fled through Derby and the cities of Lycaonia, were beaten and cast into the dungeon, and their feet made fast in the stocks at Philippi, and persecuted at Thessalonica. The remainder of the Acts of the Apostles tells of the persecutions, trials, strifes, stonings, bonds, and imprisonments of Paul to the end. He had the testimony continually with him that in every city bonds and afflictions abide me. His prison was often his church house, the prison box his pulpit, and much of his evangelistic labor was done wearing a chain. This life of strivings, conflicts, and persecutions was ended by death at the hands of the civil rulers. The other apostles had much the same history. All, it is believed, like the Master, ended their lives by the sword, the stonings, the cross, the fire and faggot of the civil power. Every inch of ground gained and held by Christ and his apostles was gained and held against the fierce persecutions or more hurtful temptations of the civil power. The civil power sought to throttle the church as it sought to destroy its founder in its infancy. The life of his physical body was a type of the life of his spiritual body, the church. The relationship of Christ and his church to civil power is plainly declared in his own teachings and actions. When they came to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented, anticipated him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take tribute? Of their own children, or of strangers? Peter saith to him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free? Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast a hook, and take up the first fish that cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth thou shalt find a piece of money. Take that, and give unto them for me and thee. This indicates that Christ's teaching had raised the doubt with the Jews whether he would count himself a child or a stranger under the civil government. Although born a citizen, Jesus, apprehending the questionings of their mind, solved it, and refused to claim the exemption of a child, and once and forever placed himself and his disciples among the strangers to these governments. Some may think this hardly required by the context. A pondering of all the parts necessitates the conclusion. Besides, one of the oldest manuscripts has added as the close of the last sentence, quote, seeing we are strangers to the kingdoms of earth, unquote, as a reason why they should pay it. While we do not hold this as a part of the genuine text, it shows that this was understood from a very early date to be the meaning of the passage. 
and this meaning was much more likely to have come down from the early apostolic age when the cruel rulers were persecuting Christians than to have been added at a later date when the church was in affiliation with civil government. Then it must be construed to mean that Jesus intended to teach that he and his servants were not children of civil government. He and his servants constituted the government of God in contradistinction to the human governments of earth, which the Savior clearly teaches were the governments of the prince of this world who hath nothing in me. No clearer evidence could be furnished that it was well understood by the enemies as well as the friends of Christ that his mission was to destroy the governments of earth than the record of Matthew 12, verse 15, Mark 12, verse 14, Luke 20, and verse 20. Knowing this, they sought to commit him against the lawfulness of giving tribute to Caesar and thus find ground for accusation to secure his condemnation. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel against him how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent unto him the lawyers with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth, neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of man. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled, and left him, and went their way. This clearly shows that it was well understood that Christ was to destroy the kingdoms of earth. These lawyers, under the guise of friendship, sought to entrap him into expressions that would convict him of treason, that they might secure his condemnation. He not only thwarted their purpose, but taught the lesson in an emphatic way of the Christian's duty to human kingdoms. Tertullian, who was probably born within half a century of the death of the Apostle John, gives this explanation of this saying of the Savior. The image of Christ which is on the coin is to be given to Caesar, and the image of God which is in man is to be given to God. Therefore thou must indeed give thy money to Caesar, but thyself to God, for what will remain to God if all be given to Caesar? No better explanation has ever been given of the Savior's words. It teaches what the Savior taught. Pay your taxes, but you are not children or servants of the earthly governments. Give your personal service and your bodily powers to God. Tertullian not only gives this as the meaning of the Savior, but he shows what was the prevailing impression of the teaching of the Savior and the apostles within the first century after the establishment of the church. These ideas must have come down from the days of the apostles. They could not have originated after the church found favor with the civil power. In John 18, verse 33, Pilate asked Jesus, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Christ disavows the earthly character of his kingdom, declares that it is of a nature so different from all worldly kingdoms that his servants could not fight for his kingdom. If they could not fight for his kingdom, they could not fight for any kingdom. Hence, in this respect, could not be members and supporters of the earthly kingdoms. This is also a declaration that he does not belong to the Jewish nation. He was born a Jew, and the Jewish people, anxious to regain their nationality, were willing to follow any leader that would promise them freedom from the Roman yoke and a restoration of the earthly kingdom of Judaism. The Roman governors were sensitive toward all such as disturbers of the peace and quiet of the people and exciters of insurrection. Hence, Pilate, the representative of the Jewish government, asked Jesus, "Art thou the King of the Jews?" He replies, "Do you ask this of yourself, or did others make the charge?" Pilate refers him to his own Jewish nation and the priests. He responds, "My kingdom is not of this world." I am not a member of the Jewish worldly government. I seek no earthly throne. My subjects cannot fight. This candid answer quieted the fears of Pilate, and he testified, "I find no fault in him." Yet to please the Jews, he scourged him and delivered him to them to be buffeted and abused. They demand his death because he claims to be the Son of God. Pilate trembles with fear at such an idea and seeks to let him go. The Jews cry, "If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend." Pilate, fearing to be charged with treason to Caesar, signed the death warrant of the Son of God and delivered him to be crucified. All showing that he claimed, and that his enemies recognized that he claimed to be a child of no earthly kingdom, but that the kingdom he came to establish was unlike and separate from any and all earthly kingdoms. Yet that he was in antagonism to Caesar was the ground on which his death warrant was extracted from Caesar. The Savior said to his disciples, "He that hath no sword, let him sell his garments and buy one." They said, "Lord, here are two swords," and he said unto them, "It is enough." Luke twenty-two verse thirty-six. This is seemingly out of harmony with the Savior's teaching. What does it mean? We can only tell what was done with the swords. Judas and his band came against the Savior with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Then said Jesus unto Peter, "Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it?" John eighteen verses three through ten. He here taught his disciples could not use the sword of violence to prevent the suffering brought on us through obeying the will and fulfilling the commands of God. In Matthew twenty-six verse fifty-two, Jesus says, "Put up again the sword in its place, for they that take the sword shall perish by the sword." The only use made of it was to teach these lessons, both seeming to prohibit the use of the sword, 
And this last teaching, not that every individual who used a sword would necessarily perish by the sword, but that all institutions builded by the sword or by violence must perish by the sword or violence. All human governments are builded by the sword, therefore must perish by the sword. Christ's church must be so builded as to stand forever, therefore it cannot be built by the sword. It would seem that the sword was used to teach that even though in the power and possession of the children of God, they are not permitted to use it. The apostles were imprisoned and punished for preaching the gospel and were forbidden to preach any more in the name of Christ. They responded, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And this was the Spirit that guided the apostles in all their preaching. They paid their taxes and treated the human rulers with respect when they did not interfere with their duty to God. When they did this, all Christians, as Christ had done, disobeyed the ruler and obeyed the God of heaven. They showed in this that they were subjects of the kingdom of God and only in a secondary sense of a human ruler. No man can serve two masters. He will love the one and hate the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. The first of all commandments is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy body. To love a ruler is to serve him from the heart. Ye cannot serve God and the ruler of this world. All powers of the soul, mind, and body must be devoted to the service of God.